0: Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning, church. Great to be back with you today. I want to thank Eric for preaching last week. Great job, brother. Really appreciate it. You've got a golf clap. (laughs) We will be together in Galatians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me there. If not, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And in those Bibles, those blue ones, will be on page 566, page 566. Uh, Eric did a a great job of showing us last week that um, our lives must be consistent with our words. I'll come back to that and and, uh, speak to it in just a moment by way of review. Uh, But uh, last week, uh, Jill and I went uh, together to uh, speak at a Latino congregation down by the fairgrounds called True Love Church. Many of you will remember roughly 18 months ago or so, um, Augustine Chacon came to a members meeting and shared with us, and uh, we went and and worshiped with them. Uh, Really dear brother, they're going through uh, some very significant, important changes in the life of their church. So I'd encourage you to be praying for uh, True Love as they continue to follow Christ uh, together. Augustine's a great, a really great friend. So thank you for the, the privilege of being there to serve them and Eric for, for uh, holding the word here for us. Um, by way of, of reminder or review, let's take a couple of minutes to consider where we've been thus far, because at this point in Galatians, we're, we're shifting to a new section. And so it'd be helpful to sort of orient us back where we started in particular, if you're new with us, this hopefully will catch you up. Um, our habit as a church is to most weeks to work our way passage by passage until we cover a whole book of the Bible and then to start with another book and do the same thing uh, week after week, month after month, year after year Before, because it is uh, God's Word through which we hear Him speaking. and So this is our joy as a church family is to open the Scriptures We've been this fall in Galatians, we've covered the first two chapters thus far. This letter was originally written to a group of churches who had started off strong through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but now had wandered, or were in the process of wandering away. They had been exposed to false teaching and Paul was writing them to catch them back up on the truth. And in particular, he's been telling them Here's why the gospel he preached to them was trustworthy. And here's why his ministry should be counted on as being from God. And he used three arguments thus far to make that point. First, he said, I myself was appointed by Jesus himself to be an apostle. Second thing he said is Peter, James, and John, those three leaders among the apostles, they had all supported him and had been preaching the same gospel. And then last week, Eric helpfully enabled us to see that so confident was Paul of the gospel he preached, that even if Peter's life didn't match the truth of the gospel, he was willing to confront him. And that's the function of that story that we looked at last week together. The chapter ends with what probably you only had a few minutes last week to consider just briefly. It's a rather complex paragraph at the end of chapter 2, but simply makes this point. People are justified or declared right with God by faith in Christ alone. People are justified by faith in Christ alone. Now imagine with me that that paragraph serves as, as the hinge on a door. And just like the hinges hold up a door and enable it to open and shut, that paragraph, that assertion, that people are justified by faith in Christ alone. That swings us open into the next chapter, into the next section of what we'll spend the next few weeks together considering. And um, essentially, each paragraph we're going to cover the next several weeks is carefully constructed to correct bad theology and to reassert good theology in its place. Now, I'm sure that that has you on the edge of your seats. But all seriousness aside, it should. Because what's going to happen here is we're going to be encouraged to see the difference between Jesus and spiritual counterfeits about Jesus, between the real thing and something fake. And that should help all of us be reassured of our relationships with God, of what it takes to be right with Him." Our hope and prayer is that this would enable all of us to think more deeply together about what is true. Now to be honest with you, this, is not, is this particular message, I'm even having a hard time saying this, uh, this particular sermon is not going to be simple, um, it's going to be rather complex because the passage is. And so um, I hope that you'll uh, hang with me till the end and find some really applicable things here for us. Before we read the passage, a couple of comments that may help us to understand what's happening in the passage itself. If you were attempting to persuade a friend of something important and true, then how would you go about that? You for a minute, imagine a friend, um, hopefully you have some, you're not really imagining, and you are going to engage them in a conversation about something serious, important, and something in which you are not presently in agreement, what tools would you use to try and convince them? Does the situation make sense? All right? Some things you could do is you could appeal to logic or reason. You could tell a story. You could mount evidence and sort of piece by piece, seek to lead them to a conclusion. You could could appeal to an outside expert and say, if this person is the expert and they know this, then shouldn't we also? These are all things you could rightly do to try to persuade someone about something that really matters. That's what Paul sets out to do in the third chapter of Galatians. He sets out to persuade The Christians in Galatia of the gospel he had told them originally. Now, this portion of the book of Galatians is is sort of the meat of the book. So imagine when the chapters 1 and 2 are the top bun, and chapters 5 and 6 are the bottom bun, and chapters 4 and 5, they're the meat of the argument. Or if you're vegetarian, they're the black bean burger of the argument. And therefore, they're the the most dense part of the whole book, but they really form the core of what the book as a whole is all about. I am concerned that this hypothetical situation we've just put up of, you've got a friend, you're trying to persuade them of something. I'm concerned that godly persuasion is becoming something of a lost art. Can you think of the last time a fellow Christian tried to persuade you of something in the Scriptures that you, at the time, didn't receive? Can you think of the last time? Friends, one of the most helpful ways we love each other is by laboring to help each other believe and keep on believing what God has said in His Word. And that will mean at times that we seek to be godly and persuasive toward one another. And just a a moment or two on that before we read the actual passage is to take this moment to sort of pause and step back from Galatians 3 and just notice what Paul's doing and how strange it might seem to some of us. We are indoctrinated culturally with the message that we ought never infringe on what someone else thinks. That whatever anyone thinks is totally fine. And yet Paul here is going to aim to persuade us that that's not true. Church, our current cultural thinking presents a real challenge to our life together as a church family. Because principally, one of the things we agree to do as we commit to each other in church membership is to seek to help each other stick with Jesus, to think rightly about Him, to believe all that God has said in His Word. And that will at times mean... We've got to try to convince each other, right? When I was coming of age, the dominant worldview was something called postmodernism. And to put it very simply, postmodernism was the belief that science and progress had failed. And because they had failed, then truth didn't actually exist. It was a lost project. So everyone was free to do and to think whatever they wanted because there was no truth to actually be had. Now, if you're upwards of my age or older, I'll keep you guessing what that is. Postmodernism was what you grew up hearing. Postmodernism was obviously a test to Christianity, but the dominant worldview of of people younger than me is far more corrosive to Christianity than postmodernism ever was. Theologians and sociologists argue today that many Americans, especially those of us who are 35 and younger, tend to see the world not through something called postmodernism, but rather through something called expressive individualism. Now, I realize all of you got up this morning hoping to hear these big uh, sociological words. No, nobody came for that. But hang with me for a minute, because I think this really is a significant point to understanding the passage and how the passage makes sense to us today. Whereas postmodernism said there is no truth, Expressive individualism says the exact opposite. It says, no, there is truth. It says, though, that the way you find truth, the place truth resides, is inside every person. So, you have your truth, I have my truth, and the only thing that matters is are we being authentic to our own self? And if we are, then that means we are living in the truth. Truth resides in the self. Truth, meaning fulfillment, is whatever you want it to be. As long as you're serious and authentic, as long as you follow your heart, as long as you do what feels right on the inside without conforming to any external pressure, then you are, in fact, living in the truth. Are you familiar with this? Uh, Brothers and sisters, pay attention this week. You will hear it literally everywhere. It is the air we breathe. The gospel, if we want to put it this way, the gospel of expressive individualism is this. Look within, find your deepest sense of self, and then express that to the world. According to this view, the worst thing you could ever do is question or stifle your own desires because they are inherently good. Now, although there are obviously many differences between Christianity and expressive individualism, they do agree on one central point. And that's actually quite helpful to us as Christians. Both Christianity and expressive individualism agree that truth does, in fact, exist. And so we have a tremendous place to start from if we would be having conversations with people who would be full adherents to that view because we can say, unlike postmodernism, truth does exist. Christianity, though, says, not look inside yourself, but rather look outward and upward to God. But as Christians, we believe that truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that truth exists outside of us, that it is objective, that it can be analyzed and studied and poked at and thought about and argued over. But truth is all that God says. And that real, genuine joy and peace come not from focusing on a subjective choose your own truth adventure, but rather through being saved by Jesus Christ. So I, I wanted to go into that a little bit in order for us to, to see this connection to Galatians chapter 3. Paul loves the people that make up the churches. Galatia. And God loves us. And that's why He led Paul to write these words that would then be studied by all churches everywhere for all time. And God would seek through His Word to persuade us of what is true. But we've got to accept that as our basis for how we love each other well. I hope in the next several weeks as we look carefully at this this meat of the book of Galatians that we'll not only understand the gospel better, but we'll be better equipped to love each other well and help each other stick with Jesus by ascertaining something of how Paul went about this act of loving, godly persuasion. Now, in Galatians chapter 3 the section we'll look at today, verses 1 through 9, we'll see Paul making two appeals. He appeals first to experience, and he appeals second to Scripture. And in both of them, he's seeking to say essentially this. People are made right with God by faith alone. How do we know that? Well, number one, he's going to argue, you know it, Christian, because of your experience. And then he's going to say, you know what, number two, because of Scripture. And so with those two things in mind, let's consider the passage together. Don't worry, the introduction is not in any way commensurate to the length of the sermon. All right, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. "'O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? "'It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified.' Let me ask you only this. Here's the experience Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many. (coughs) I said suffer and then I had to cough the irony. coffee helps everything. Sorry. Verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This new section of Galatians gets started with a bang. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That is biblical language for this passage is rated R. It means exactly what it sounds like it means. As Paul thought of the Galatian Christians and how they were in the process of falling prey, to the lie that someone must believe in Jesus and be circumcised in order to be saved. The only word he could rightly find was foolish. The false teachers had been teaching idiotic babble, and yet it had been effective at misleading these young Christians. And in a sense, this the false teacher's gospel of works had cast a spell over the people of God. Initially, through the faithful preaching of this apostle, the churches had been born, people had come to know Jesus Christ, they had believed, and yet now, ever so quickly, they were in the process of turning away. And so if you look at that paragraph carefully, what you'll see is there's a series of five rhetorical questions intending on undoing the false teaching by appealing to the experiences of the Galatian Christians. For time's sake, I just want to speak to one of them, one of the five. It's the first one. Look with me again at verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Friend, verse 2 indicates that one way we know what's true is by remembering what God did when we first believed, remembering what God did when we were converted. To use today's terminology, remembering what God did when we became Christians. It uses the phrase receiving the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, when God saved you, you received The Spirit. You didn't see the Spirit. He's a Spirit after all. You probably didn't audibly hear the Spirit. He doesn't normally talk like that. You may not have gotten goosebumps and had this warm, fuzzy, euphoric spiritual experience. Or maybe you did. Maybe you cried. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you felt nothing physical at all. But when we were converted, one of the many things that happened is the Holy Spirit came and took up residence inside of each one of us. And the Spirit has been given a divine job description. Let me tell you a few of His essential duties that we know from the rest of Scripture. The Spirit takes up residence in the Christian in order to give us courage to tell people about Jesus. He takes up residence in the people of God in order to comfort us, in order to open our minds to understand the Bible. He causes sin to increasingly taste bad. And He causes what is true and right and godly to taste more and more and more good. He implants in our hearts the desire to love God, to obey God, and particularly to love the people of God. These are some of the things the Spirit does. Christian, as you think about all that work that God's done in your life, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, how did you get Him? Paul says there's only two options. Did you get the Spirit as resident inside of you because you followed some set of rules from God? Or did you get the Spirit because you believed? Those are the two choices laid out for us. Church, think back to when you first received the Holy Spirit. Did you get the Spirit because you sufficiently obeyed all of God's commandments? Or did you get the Spirit because you heard the gospel and believed? According to the Scriptures, it is that simple. Did the Spirit of God take residence in the people of God because they obeyed the law of God? Or because they trusted the Son of God? Friends, the truth is that no one has ever received the Spirit because of merit. We receive the Spirit because we trust God. Romans 10 verse 17 puts it this way. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Now, I can't emphasize how important this is. Christian, did the Holy Spirit enter your life and begin to transform you? Has your experience been... That God has entered you and that God has remained with you. If so, then that has happened because of belief. There is no other way of salvation. Now, in reality, most of us in this room are already followers of Jesus, the Spirit has already been received by us. And so, Much of what I'm saying may sort of feel like water on a duck's back. And yet, Christian, the rest of the paragraph is so critically helpful to us because it speaks to our oft experience. It's easy to begin the Christian life by the Spirit and then to try to live the Christian life by the law, isn't it? Isn't it easy to, to trust Jesus by His Spirit and then to go and grab the, the commandments of God and take them off the shelf and make them the means by which we understand that we're continued to, to be right with God? And yet, brothers and sisters, that's not how this works. We received the Spirit by faith to enter the Christian life. And now we live the Christian life by the same Spirit. Yes, we seek to obey. And yet we seek to obey by the Spirit. It's all grace. Amen? There's a pretty famous children's song. It goes like this. If you know it, you can join in with me. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. (laughs) We'll stop there. All right? A lot of you know it. That's fantastic. The Galatians were hearing a different version of that song. They'd begun the Christian life with the theology represented in that song. That's that's a child song, but it is not childish. It, in fact, is good and sound and right and true. But the Galatian Christians were hearing the false teachers sing a different tune. It went like this. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, but you are not so let's go out back and get you circumcised. (laughs) They were teaching that one cannot be made right with God apart from observance of the Old Testament law. That one had to believe in Jesus and follow the law and then You could be a son of Abraham. And their slippage into believing that is what compelled Paul to write this stern paragraph. Friend, they had begun by the Spirit and were now being tempted to try and be perfected by the flesh. Paul here undoes all of that by showing that the essential mark of a Christian is not circumcision. It is the reception of the Holy Spirit. You see, what circumcision in the Old Testament had always pointed forward to, namely, the seed of Abraham would come fully and finally in Jesus Christ. And all the Old Testament law would be fulfilled In the man, Jesus, such that circumcision is rendered no longer necessary and observance of the civil and ceremonial laws no longer required because they've all been completed in Christ. The shadow is gone because the substance is here. This is what Paul is persuading them of. Their experiences with God, when they were saved, confirmed it. They no longer needed the Old Testament law. Belief in God is the determining factor. Simple trust in Jesus, not one's work for Jesus, is what makes one right with God. Now that's Paul's first appeal. He says, look back at what happened to you. The second appeal he makes is to the Scriptures. That's the next paragraph. In the next paragraph, Paul is going to say, justification has always been by faith alone. It has always been true, even before Jesus came, that the only way to be right with God was to be made right with God by faith. Look with me, if you would, at the appeal to Scripture, starting in verse 7. "'Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham.' And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, I wish we could spend the entire day together talking about those three marvelous verses, because they pull together a beautiful thread woven throughout the whole Bible that unites all the individual stories of Scripture into a beautiful tapestry of God's grace. But you have been laboring long with me already. Our time is short. So let me make just a few comments that were designed to say to you, this text is a mine full of gold. Would you get together with another brother or sister this week? And study it together, pray about it, meditate on it, ponder it, beat it in prayer with God to try to understand. It is one of the most marvelous paragraphs in the entire Bible. But just a few comments. Verse 7 simply indicates that people who are right with God are people who take God at His word. People who are sons and daughters of Abraham are people who have faith. How do you get to be a part of Abraham's family? By faith. Friends, there are no grandkids in the family of God. There are only kids. Each person must exercise faith. We share in Abraham's blessings by joining Abraham's family, and the only way to join Abraham's family is by faith in God, trusting him. The the consistent drumbeat of Scripture from beginning to end is that faith is what God expects. Faith is the vehicle through which we receive all the blessings of Abraham. Now, the way Paul goes about arguing that is fascinating And it's so easy to miss. So let me try to show it to you. He he makes this case in three simple movements in this one paragraph. Number one, in verse 6, which is the bridge between the two. Some of your translations put verse 6 in the paragraph we just read. Some put it in the one before. It's not entirely clear which one it belongs in. So verse 6 says that Abraham believed God. And it quotes, if you're taking notes, you might note this down. It quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. It quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. God promised Abraham that he would act on his behalf, doing him spiritual good forever. And Abraham trusted God. Abraham heard what God said and said, God, you're nuts but I believe you. God, I trust you. I take you at your word. And on account of that trust in God alone, Abraham was counted right with God. Friend, that's how this has always worked. Anyone on any continent at any time under any circumstance, has been made right with God because they've taken him at his word. That's what Paul's arguing in this first movement. Now, in the second, look at the promise in verse 8. You'll notice there in your Bibles that it's in quotations. It says, in you shall all the nations be blessed. You see that? That's also a quote from the book of Genesis. But this time, it's not from Genesis 15. It's a promise from Genesis 12. But notice the language Paul uses to talk about that promise made to Abraham. He says that Abraham heard the gospel. Now that ought to like leap off the page in neon flashing lights. Because friends, this is, Centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries before anybody ever knew the name Jesus. God told Abraham, Here's what I'm going to do. Abraham believed. And God's declaration of what God would do for his people, Paul says, was a preaching of the gospel beforehand. It's amazing. Everybody who puts faith and trust in God, whether before before Jesus came or after Jesus came, has always been saved in exactly the same way, by faith. Faith, church, is what God requires. Do you believe Him? Do you take Him at His word? If so, then you are justified. You have been made right with God. You are counted as a son or daughter of Abraham apart from your works. You believe God does everything else. Now, it's almost certain that the false teachers in Galatia were using Abraham as their prime example. It's almost 100% certain that they were arguing circumcision is required in order to be saved, and we know that, Because Abraham was circumcised. Because God told him that he should be and all his sons after him. Therefore, that's how we know it must be true. Now, the third movement of the passage is the most amazing one. And it's sort of between the lines. You've got to understand why the first two movements in order to get the third. So this is sort of like some theological jiu-jitsu, okay? Now, I struggled with math, but hang with me here, and I think you'll get it too. Genesis 15, that's the first passage quoted, right? And then what was the second? Genesis 12. Now, based on Genesis 15 and Genesis 12, Abraham has already been counted right with God. In Genesis 17, Abraham's told, he and his followers must be circumcised. Does 15 come before 17? Does 12 come before 17? Friend, Paul's point is, the Bible itself says, Prior to circumcision, Abraham was already counted right with God. What? <laughs> Abraham was right with God because of faith, not because of works. And it's always been that way. Paul brilliantly takes the chief argument of the false teachers, and shows them that they themselves don't even understand Abraham. Christian, your reception of the Holy Spirit and the unified declaration of the Scriptures covering at least 3,000 years of history, both testify that you are counted right with God by faith. What does God ask of you? He asks you to believe Him, to trust Him. And everything else flows out of what He gives you. because you've chosen to trust Him. Now, does obedience matter? Do do the commands of God give us what's right and true, and should we follow any Old Testament command that is repeated or restated in the New Testament? Yes, absolutely. But friends, those things flow out of a life of faith. They don't cause one to come about. Don't start the Christian life by the Spirit and then put the Spirit on the shelf and bring the law out and try to live by it. Having begun by the Spirit, continue by the Spirit. And when we find ourselves veering from that, believing that we are made right or stay right with God based on what we do, And brothers and sisters, may we love each other enough to put the time in to try to use the Bible to persuade each other that that's not how this works. And friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted God to count you as right with Him, what in the world are you waiting for? The essential message of the Bible is not what will you do for God. It is what God has done for you. Friend, there's all kinds of things in the Bible that, even as a Christian, longer than many of you have been alive, I'm still struggling to understand. But the essential message of the Bible is clear, it is plain, it is simple. You and I are jacked up sinners. We cannot make ourselves right with God. But God took the initiative to send Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life, fully obeying the law, died a sinner's death, rose again in victory, ascended to heaven where He rules and reigns over all, In one day will come back again. And if you will sit down in that truth, That is all God asks of you. If you believe that, then tell God you believe it and you will receive the Spirit and God will begin to transform you. We'd love to talk with you more about that after the service in just a moment. But if you're ready, you can just respond to that gospel message now. Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. You can be one of them by faith. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to do your work now. Helping us to believe, to take you at your word. Pray for Christians to be strengthened, and confident, and sure in this good news. I pray for any here who don't yet believe that God they wouldn't stay in that unbelief alone. That they'd allow friends and other church members to share with them the experience they've had with you. We pray, God, that you would help us to love each other enough to labor with one another to stick with Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.